Uh, before I begin, can I just say that a passage, uh, uh, Tim has alluded to the fact that this passage is a difficult one. Uh, and it might be difficult for some people to hear. Uh, it might trigger emotions or memories. Uh, and if there are things in this passage that um, raise difficulties for you, then please do uh, find a Christian brother or sister whom you trust, uh, share with them, uh, ask them to pray for you. Uh, and if you'd like someone from the pastoral team uh, to, to be that person, then, then, then come and speak to us after the service or uh, fill a connect card and let us know. Uh, and if you're a sister and you'd like to make an appointment to talk to another woman uh, and uh, you want it to, us to arrange that for you, uh, then please do, do let us know on the Connect card as well. Uh, parents, you've uh, read the passage that I'm preaching on, uh, so I'll leave it to you uh, if you want to, um, your kids to remain in church uh, during the summer. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father, we know that your word is good, uh, even though it speaks to us about things that are bad. Uh, we pray that you'll speak to us this morning by your spirit through your word, uh, that we might know uh, what you're saying to us uh, through this today. And uh, we pray that, uh, uh, that your word uh, will teach us, rebuke us, correct us, train us in all righteousness, uh, that we might be equipped for every good work. Uh, and above all, uh, may we see Jesus to love him and to follow him. We pray this in his name. Amen. 1,000 years before Christ, back in 1 Samuel, God had chosen an unlikely shepherd boy, David, a man after his own heart, to be king. He put his spirit upon him, making him the anointed one, the Messiah. And David then became the saviour of Israel, saving them from their enemies. He was persecuted by the incumbent king, Saul, but he never took the kingdom by force. Like the ultimate Messiah, he suffered first before entering into his kingdom. In 2 Samuel, David became king. He became the, first he became the king of Judah, and only later on he became the king of all Israel. Again, foreshadowing the ultimate Messiah. And in 2 Samuel 7, God made amazing promises to him. The son of David would build God's temple. The son of David would be God's son. And his dynasty would last forever. And if we keep on reading after 2 Samuel 7, which we did last year, we saw how David ruled as God's king should. And in 2 Samuel 8.15, David administered justice and equity to all his people. He defeated his enemies, God's enemies. He showed grace and kindness to Mephibosheth in fulfillment of his promises to his father. David was God's chosen king. And what a king he was. But two weeks ago, we saw how Three weeks ago now. No, two weeks ago. Two weeks ago. I get confused because I preached there as well as here. Two weeks ago, we began to see how all this unraveled. In chapter 11, David fell into sin. And in that chapter, which makes no mention of God, he committed adultery with Bathsheba. And to cover it up, he arranged the murder of her husband, Uriah. But God saw what happened. 
And that chapter ended with this chilling sentence. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And then last week, we saw how God dealt with David. He brought his word to him through the prophet Nathan. He said in 2 Samuel 12, 9 and 10, Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. God spoke his word to David and David repented. He genuinely turned from sin to God. And the Lord put away his sin. The Lord forgave David. He would not die. He would not die. He deserved to die, but he would not die. But nevertheless, David had utterly scorned the Lord. The child who Bathsheba bore him died. And from now until the end of this book of 2 Samuel, we will see all kinds of calamities affect David and his house. God promised to judge, and he would do so. But before that, God had also promised to bless. Remember, God promised that David's dynasty would last forever. And that promise was still good, even though David sinned. And so now we are looking at the sons of David and wondering, who is it going to be who will inherit God's promises? Bathsheba, in the last chapter, bore David another son, Solomon, whom God loved. But there are other sons of David as well. And there are two of them who will play a significant role in this next part of the story. And we meet both of these sons of David in verse 1 of chapter 13. The first one is Absalom. Again, the writer notes David's son. He is introduced here first because he's going to be a really key player in these next six chapters. But the one thing we are told about him uh, in this verse is that he has a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And then we meet another son of David, who is actually David's first son, Amnon. And Amnon becomes infatuated with Tamar. Now, because he is his half-sister, they can't get married. And there's no good way to satisfy this infatuation. Just like there could have been no good way to satisfy his father David's desire for Bathsheba. You know, friends, there are times that as sinful people, we develop sinful desires. Desires for which there is no godly fulfillment. They are wrong. And we must fight against them rather than indulge them. And we must remember that they are but sin sinful perversions of godly desires for satisfaction which will ultimately find fulfillment in God and his people in the new creation. But instead of accepting that this is wrong and is not to be, Amnon allows his desire to grow. He must be have Tamar. 
But she lives with the other virgin daughters of the king. He has no access to her. His desire becomes an obsession, even to the point where it's affecting his health. And so his friend Jonadab, the son of David's brother, speaks to him. Jonadab is known as a clever man. And he wants to exercise influence over Amnon, who is, after all, the king's first son. He says to him in verse 4, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon eventually explains in verse 4 again, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Be careful, friends, who you open up to and share your deepest feelings with. An ungodly person might give you ungodly advice. Jonadab is smart, but he's not godly. It's a dangerous combination. He should have taught Amnon to fight his desire for Tamar. He should have counseled him lovingly but firmly that this is wrong. He should have helped him redirect his passion to, in another direction. To be grateful for all the blessings he's been given as the king's first son instead of obsessing over what he could not morally have. But instead of doing that, Jonadab comes up with a plan to get them alone. He says in verse 5, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, let my sister Kema come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may eat, see it and eat from her hand. And that's what Amnon does. David falls for it, sends Tamar to her brother Amnon's house. And Amnon is lying there, supposedly sick. She takes the dough and kneads it and makes cakes and bakes it in front of him. She empties the pan for the meal, but then doesn't want to eat. Instead, he sends everyone away. Tells her to come and feed him in the chamber, his bedroom. She brings the cakes in the bedroom. And when she tries to feed him in verse 11, he takes hold of her and says, Come, lie with me, my sister. And she rightly refuses. Her first word in verse 12 is, No. No. And no matter how perverted he already was, no matter how wicked his plan was, he should have backed off at this point. Because no means no. She argues with him from every angle. She pleads with him, do not violate me. She appeals to him, such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. She wants him to think of her future. As for me, where will I carry my shame? She wants him to think of his future. You would be in a, a, one of the outrageous fools in Israel. She even gives him an unlikely alternative. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he doesn't listen. He overpowers her and rapes her. And friends, this is a terrible, terrible, terrible evil. David acted wickedly with regard to Bathsheba. 
And this son of David is even worse. Brothers and sisters, there is no excuse for sexual violence. Sexual violence against women is a terrible reality in our sinful world. And if you're the, someone who is a victim of such evil, I am so sorry. Know that it is wrong, that you're not to blame. Tamar was not to blame, Amnon was. And those who propagate such evils deserve judgment. In this world, by the proper authorities God has appointed, and in the next, by the judge of all the world himself. Under the law, once a man lies with a woman, he is obliged to offer to marry her and look after her for the rest of her life. Now, it, there might be obvious problems with marrying her. She's his sister. But whatever else happens, he still has obligations to her. But now that he's had his way with Tamar, Amnon despises her. In fact, in verse 15, the hatred with which he hates her is greater than the love with which she loved her. And he tells her to go away. She pleads with him again in verse 16, No, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other you did to me. But he will not listen to her. Calls his servants in. Says in verse 17, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her, as if she's the one who's been harassing him. Except, except that he doesn't. The word woman there is supplied by our translators. What he says is, put this out of my presence and bolt the door after her. So she's nothing. Having been evicted from Amnon's home, Tamar put ashes on her head as a sign of mourning. She tears the long robe that the virgin daughters of the king wear to show that she's not one of them anymore. She lays her hands on her head and she goes away, crying aloud as she does. A broken, distraught woman. Her brother Absalom tries to comfort her. He says in verse 20, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. Now at this point, we don't know why she's saying this. But to his credit, Absalom does what Amnon failed to do. He takes Tamar in and looks after her himself. And so Tamar lives a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. So in this first half of the chapter, up to verse 20, we've seen the terrible thing that Amnon, son of David, did. In the second half of the chapter, from chapter 22 onwards, we will see Absalom, the other son of David, also doing a terrible thing. But in between, we have verse 21. And verse 21 is important, it's very important because it's the pivotal verse on which our passage turns. Because in verse 21, David, no, 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 King David, hears about what happened. Back in 2 Samuel 
8.15, you remember, David administered justice and equity to all his people. That's what a king is meant to do. And that is what Tamar needs right now, doesn't she? She needs a king who will administer justice and bring vengeance upon Amnon for what he has done. So what happens when David finds out? Verse 21. When King David hears of all these things, he's very angry. And rightly so. But, but what does he do? Absolutely nothing. Yes, in chapter 8, he administered justice and equity for all his people. But, but that was before Bathsheba and Uriah. Now, he can't even administer justice for his own family. Probably because he feels like he has lost the moral authority to do so. Absalom hates Amnon. You can understand why. He says nothing, but he plots. And two full years later, he makes his move. He has sheep shearers at a place called Baal Hazor, which is about the same distance from Jerusalem as Batu Caves is from here. And shearing is a, traditionally a time for celebration. Uh, so he invites the king and his servants to come. Uh, David declines in a very polite kind of way. Uh, but even when Absalom insists, he says no, but he gives his blessing. And then Absalom says, okay, can you send Amnon and your sons? David can't understand why he wants them, but Absalom keeps on his pressing, and eventually David gives in. The one who manipulatively sent Uriah to his death was manipulated into sending his daughter to her desolation and is now being manipulated to sending his sons into this feast. What a terrible irony for David. For at the feast, Absalom commands his servants, verse 28, Mark, verse 28, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. Well, the servants of Absalom do what he commands, and Amnon is killed. And all the king's other sons quickly get up and each bounce their mule and they flee because they don't, they don't want to be next, right? They know if this is the start of a coup, they will all be killed because if they're all killed, there's no challenge over the throne except Absalom. And while they're, they've left, they're on their way, news comes to David. The news is not quite right. The news is, in verse 30, Absalom has struck down all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. So David thinks all his sons have been killed. And he gets up, and he tears his garments, and he falls down to the ground in despair. He's beginning to feel that grief and anguish that Tamar felt but she acted in a similar way. He has lost all his sons, and with them, all hope for the future. 
And all his servants were standing by. They also tear their garments. They join him in his grief. What's going to happen to God's promises to David now? There are no more sons of David except Absalom, the murderer. But guess who makes an appearance again? It's Jonadab, son of David's brother. The man whose wicked advice led Amnon to sin in the first place. And he's now with David and he offers the comfort of a right diagnosis. This is not a coup, it's revenge. He says in verse 32, Let not my lord suppose they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now therefore, let not my lord the king so take it to heart to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. Even ungodly people can get it right sometimes. But it doesn't make them godly advisors. And still you wonder, how does Jonadab know all this? Is he really so clever? Or has he been colluding with Absalom all along? Well, the next thing we hear is the voice of a watchman with young, sharp eyes. And he reports there are many people who are coming from the road behind, by the side of the mountain, an unexpected direction. Turns out it's the other sons of David. They are alive, after all. Perhaps they've taken a circuitous route in case Absalom decides to pursue them on the main road. So Jonadab was right, and he's, of course, very quick to point that out. And by the time he finishes speaking, the king's sons arrive. They weep. The king weeps. All the servants weep bitterly, joining each other in grief. In the meantime, where is Absalom? Well, the narrator of the story tells us three times that Absalom fled. He wants to underline the fact that his sin has led him to exile. The significance we'll see next week. He goes, verse 37, to a place called Geshur and lives there under the protection of King Taumai, who happened to be his grandfather on his mother's side. The narrator also tells us in verse 37 that David mourned for his son day after day. We think he's talking about Amnon, but we're not completely sure. But we do see in verse 39 that David is eventually comforted about Amnon's death. And he begins to think of Absalom, his son in exile, which set things up for the events of the next chapter, which we'll look at next week. But by the end of today's chapter, we can see very clearly that David is a mess. He can't judge the nation. He can't even judge his own family. He can't resign. He's God's chosen king. Has no point resigning even if he could. I mean, who's he going to hand over to? His sons? As a man, David has been forgiven. His sin borne by Jesus on the cross. His name written in heaven. He is good. He will not die. But in this life, 
His sins are coming home to roost. And we see the effects of them here. And friends, there are times when there are temporal consequences of sin, that is, consequences of sin in this life, that remain even when we are forgiven before God. For example, if a church pastor falls into grievous sin, he may repent and be forgiven, but it doesn't mean he can go back to pastoring again. Or if someone commits a crime, he may repent and be forgiven by God, but he still needs to serve his time in prison for what he's done. And even in our own walk with God, there'll be times when he forgives our sins, but he still brings his discipline to bear upon us. David might be forgiven, but these effects of his sin remain. And one of those effects was his ability to bring justice. Executing justice is at the heart of the king's role. That's what he's there for. But his own sins means he's reluctant to judge justly because he himself has acted wrongly. How can he punish Amnon when he has been so sinful himself? Thank God that the true son of David, the true king, the final judge of the world, is indeed without sin. And so Jesus can judge sin with perfect justice without having three fingers pointing back at himself. These sons of David in this chapter are just like David in his sin, only worse. David committed adultery with Bathsheba, that is so bad, Amnon rates Tamar, even worse. David arranged the murder of Uriah, his captain. Absalom arranges the murder of his own brother. They're sons of David, all right, but in the worst possible way. They're nothing like the true son of David. Amnon is nothing like Jesus. Jesus had a close relationship with women, uh, something that earned him the criticism of the religious crowd. But he loved them with pure and perfect love, never treating them as objects, but as people created in God's image. And in the gospel we see him, in the gospels we see him teaching, forgiving, accepting, bantering with, and where needed, rebuking them, always with love and integrity. Jesus never used and discarded people, men or women. Instead, he loved them, served them, ultimately gave his life to save them from their sins. Jesus always treated people even better than they deserved. Amnon, son of David, is nothing like Jesus. Are we like Jesus? Or are we like Amnon? How do we treat people who are more vulnerable than us? Do we use them and discard them? Or do we treat them with respect? Jesus said, do unto others as you would want them to do to you. How would you like to be treated if the tables were turned in your situation? Follow Jesus.
not Amnon. Absalom is nothing like Jesus. Jesus didn't take things into his own hands. Yes, yes, the day will come when he will judge the world with justice and he will do so rightly because the Father has appointed him as judge of all. But he never sought to take revenge, never sought to punish before the time. Absalom is nothing like Jesus. Are we like Jesus? Or are we like Absalom? Do we let a rightful desire for justice turn into a wrongful plan for revenge? Will we let justice be done by the rightful authorities appointed by God? And if they fail, will we trust that God will bring true justice to the end? In the end? Or will will we take things into our own hands and compound one sin by committing another? Follow Jesus, not Absalom. The only person who is a little bit like Jesus in this chapter is Tamar. She is sent by her father to serve her brother. And she does. But she is mistreated by him and cast out despised and put to shame. Jesus was sent by the Father to serve us, human beings. But we mistreated him, despised him, rejected him, shamed him, and killed him. But God, the righteous Father, didn't just ignore this. He raised Jesus to life again installed him as ruler of all. And one day, all who rejected him will give account for what they've done. But notice, justice wasn't done for Jesus in this life. He died without receiving justice. It came, but only through his resurrection. It was the next life. And it will be completed at the final judgment. Justice didn't come for Jesus in this life, but it comes in the end. And the same God who brought justice for his son will one day bring justice for Tamar and for all the women who have been treated in similar ways. We should strive for justice now for them through the proper means that God has appointed. But ultimately, justice will be done for them in the end. For the king who suffered the ultimate injustice is the king who will bring about true justice. Tamar needed a king who would bring her justice and vindication. David failed her, but Jesus won't. Amnon will be raised on the last day to face his judicial wrath for what he did to Tamar. And not just Amnon. Jesus will be the judge of all, the living and the dead. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his truth. And friends, that is good news. As we look back on this passage, we notice that one thing is missing. One big thing. Do you notice here that God is not mentioned at all 
whole chapter. It's like all the characters have forgotten his presence, which is partly why all this happens. Same thing as what happened to David, right, in chapter 11. Forgot about God. Amnon would not have done what he did if he feared God. Absalom would not have done what he did if he trusted God. Jonadab would not have said what he said if his wisdom was from above. This is a tragic story. A story of sin. A story where God seems absent because all the characters are just ignoring him. Brothers and sisters, do you ever have seasons in your life when you ignore God? Are there days when you never think about Him, you never pray to Him, you never consider how He wants you to act? And those days become weeks. Those weeks become months. Of course, you're still Christian, but you know, as this happens day by day, you actually find yourself living without reference to God. That is a dangerous situation to be in. Turn around and come back to him quickly before wandering away leads you into sin that you can't undo. But the fact that God seems absent from this chapter and his name is never mentioned doesn't mean that he's not actually at work. God is sovereign. And even when he seems absent, he's still fulfilling his promises. We don't know what God was doing in the lives of each of the characters of the story. Each one has their own story before God. We're not privy to most of them. Don't know why God allowed all that happened to happen to each of them. But we are told what God was doing with respect to David's life. And in this passage, he was fulfilling his word of judgment. For God had said to David in 2 Samuel 12.10, that the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. And what happened in this chapter would only be the beginning of David's woes. Things will keep getting worse for him in the chapters to come. For this word of the Lord is now coming true, as the word of the Lord always does. But remember, God also promised David that his dynasty would last forever. And that promise was never annulled even by David's sin. So even here, when David and all his servants thought that he'd lost all his sons, that his, that his dynasty was ruled forever as he deserved it to be, it wasn't. And he got most of them back. Likewise, when everybody thought that the ultimate son of David was lost forever, he wasn't. He came back from the dead to be the risen king who would reign forever in fulfillment of God's promises to David. 
God is sovereign. And in the midst of all the ups and downs of life, in the joys and in the sorrows, even when we forget him, he is still there. We may not understand what he's doing, even in our own lives. But we know he's fulfilling his promises for judgment and for salvation. And even the terrible sinfulness of man will not prevent that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are indeed fulfilling your promises, that you are carrying out your purpose for judgment and salvation. Please help us never to forget that. And please help us never to forget you. Help us to keep turning to you, to keep remembering your presence with us keep seeking to serve you and please you in all that we do. Please help us to trust you for justice, knowing that you've instituted the proper authorities to execute justice in this world. And even when they fail, your son will execute final justice in the world to come. And so keep us, we pray, from taking things into our own hands. But where we have been given power and responsibility, help us to use it for good and not for evil, to be loving and just and not selfish and self-seeking. Help us to always treat other people rightly and to comfort those who have been wronged. When in our own sinfulness we develop desires that are sinful, give us strength to resist them rather than indulging them. And give us strength to keep on resisting them even when it's hard to persevere. And please protect us, we pray, for, from the ungodly advice of those who would urge us to do otherwise. We pray for those among us who have been mistreated in various ways. May they find hope in your justice and comfort in your love. We thank you especially for the love that your son showed us when he suffered and died to pay the penalty of our sins so that we can be forgiven. We thank you that he is the risen king who will one day bring about true justice. And so help us, we pray, to love him and follow him every day of our life. And we ask this in his name. Amen.